Pastor Don told me that since we've had the prayers in various native tongues, I'm free to speak in my own native tongue. I'm coming to you born in Arlington, Massachusetts, <laughs> where before I got saved, my life was hard. But then I asked Jesus into my heart and things got better. I am coming to you actually from the Boston area and uh, I will let occasional ahs slip during my sermon. My wife's accent is much stronger than mine actually. She grew up in Cambridge, which is more downtown Boston area. We were doing a scripture reading one time at church and at Christmas time and she said, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them. I said, Christy, who's the Lord? She goes, you know, the angel of the Lord. I said, okay, whatever. The task unfinished. If you look at your bulletin, the caption is Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14 is in the midst of a, of a discourse that Jesus gives predicting the end times. And he talks about the suffering, the hardship, the famines, the earthquakes, all these different things. And in the midst of it is this one verse of hope. It says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations and then the end shall come. And that phrase, all nations, appears later on in the Gospel of, of Matthew, in Matthew 25, the judgment of all the nations, the sheep and the goats, and then it appears in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all the nations. So three times, Matthew concentrates on all the nations. And because I know you are a globally-minded church, many of you already know the fact that that phrase, all the nations, is not just a reference to the the issue of national entities, as in the United States is a nation, but it's a reference to all the ethnicities of the world, so that all the peoples, ethnic groups, ethnicities of the world get to hear the gospel. That's the task that's unfinished. In India, it's one political nation, but there's 1,600 or more nations within that country in the ethnic sense of the word and many of them have never had a chance to hear the gospel. If you go across northern Africa all the way to China, there are literally hundreds of millions, maybe as many as two billion souls who not only have never received the gospel, they've never even heard it, and many of them are sometimes called unengaged peoples, meaning they've never even been near a fellow Christian. Now, I'm coming from a fairly unchristian part of the United States, but this morning, I could hear the gospel in Boston if I wanted to on any number of Christian radio broadcasts. Even though I am in a situation where there's not a huge percentage of Christians, the gospel is available to us. But there are places in the world where that is not so. That's the task that's unfinished. But I'm a pragmatist, and I realize that many of us in this room will probably not anytime soon be going to Western China to reach out to the Uyghur Muslims of Western China. So what do we do with that? Obviously, it stirs us to pray that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Obviously, it stirs us to maybe release our children or release our retirement dreams to go where God would send us. But what do we do with it right now? as we face a task unfinished, the opening song. It obviously, as that song reminded us, it drives us to our knees. But I'm a practical person. Last night, actually, at a, a dinner we had, Pastor Don introduced me as coming here after nine years, probably to tell the same stories because you wouldn't remember them. 
You know, and, I, and it's true sometimes when you're a guest speaker, you do go in different places and tell your greatest hits. You know, you play those. But the one thing that you might remember from 2009, if you remember anything, is that I think I was the one from the pulpit who told you to expand your prayers for the world by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. Because those clothes were made by people who might be representations of the task that's unfinished. When I put my shirt on and it says made in Bangladesh, it reminds me of people who maybe have never even heard the gospel. I'm a pragmatist. I was a youth pastor, a church pastor, and I know what it is to try to give people a sense of where we might fit in this overall unfinished task. That's why I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter eight. Because in Acts chapter eight, or put it simply, in Acts, the book of Acts, all the task is unfinished. They're just getting started. And in Acts chapter one, if you remember, Jesus says you're gonna receive power from the Holy Spirit, and then you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But just like us, the people in the church in Jerusalem got comfortable. I mean, their church grew rapidly, 3,000 in one day. They had enough things going on, probably enough church programs, a few special concerts, and here and there. They were happy with where they were. And they stay in Jerusalem for the first seven chapters, really, of the book of Acts. Then in Acts chapter eight, if you pick it up on verse one, Saul has just killed the apostles, or the, uh, the, the disciple Stephen. And he sees, it's, it ends with that in Acts chapter eight. Saul was there giving approval to his death. That's foreshadowing in Luke's writing of what's gonna happen in Acts chapter nine. But in Acts chapter eight, something else happens. Paul's, uh, Saul's killing of Stephen provokes a persecution amongst Christians. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. Remember, they've stayed there. Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, but they stay in Jerusalem. They're sitting on their hands, comfortable in their Christian fellowship. So what does God do? He allows a persecution to come, and he says, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In other words, if you're not gonna obey Acts 1.8, I'm gonna give you Acts 8.1. You know, God's gonna disperse you one way or the other. Actually, disperse comes from the Greek word diaspora, which is the word scattered. They're scattered into all the world because of an unseen situation. Now, maybe that'll be a good news for us. I know for a fact, no matter who's elected this next month, people are thinking of moving to other parts of the world. God could use that as a diaspora message. You know, go someplace where it's more predictable. Libya, maybe. You know, and, um, <laughs> but seriously, God uses things to get his word out. And one of the ways that's happened is the issue of diaspora, scattered peoples, only in reverse to the book of Acts. Because today, the number one way that we might be able, you and me, to reach unreached peoples, to engage the unengaged, to bring the gospel, to finish the task with ethnic groups that have never heard it, has to do with the diaspora people coming into our country. Well, actually in Canada, where they have even a bigger inf infusion of immigration, one of the pastors in Toronto told me, Toronto is arguably the most international city in North America. He said, Jesus commanded us to go to all the nations. 
We didn't go. So now he's bringing all the nations to us. It changes the way you look at immigration. It changes the way you look at international students. It changes the way you look at the world. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 million to 1 billion people living in countries that they weren't born in. It's one of the great hands of God in the world today so that people from North Africa are getting to hear the gospel from Christians in other African countries who are preaching to them in Paris. God is the Lord of history, even using, in this case, a suffering, a persecution. The church mourns the loss of Stephen, but the church gets dispersed. And Philip, who we first met in Acts chapter six as a spirit-filled deacon, we might call him, uh, Philip was one of the ones scattered. Now keep in mind, all the disciples at this point are, are Jewish, ethnically Jewish. And as a result of that, they would have been taught from childhood to hate on the Samaritans. They would have slang words about them, they would have stories about them, they would call them dirty, impure, half-breeds, whatever the word would be. And yet Philip is the first one in the record that actually goes and preaches to the Samaritans. It says, those who were scattered preached wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. The task is unfinished. The Samaritans haven't heard the message yet, so that's where Philip goes. Now, when you think about Philip, I want you to think about yourself. Because Samaritans, the way, a good way to describe it is, they were culturally distant but geographically close. I noticed in your church support, you support ministry in the, in the prisons. Prison ministry would be geographically close but culturally distant. Speakers of other, other languages would be geographically close but culturally distant. You see, Philip is basically crossing a boundary line, a place that he normally wouldn't have gone but now he's going there. I don't know anything about Lansing, but if it's anything like most cities, there might be parts of Lansing you just don't go to. You might be fearful about going there. That's what Philip did. He goes to Samaria. But it's interesting, he is identified in Acts chapter six as being full of the Holy Spirit, and that's how he goes. The Spirit's power comes upon him, and he does things like the casting out of demons and uh, various miracles, and people are attracted. I won't read the whole passage, but Simon the sorcerer is attracted, verses nine and following. And if you remember this story, after Samaritans believe, the apostles from Jerusalem have to come and give their thumbs up approval to it. They give their thumbs up approval, but in the meantime, uh, Simon the sorcerer, who has done dark magic, if you want to call it that, he actually is attracted to the miraculous sign of the Holy Spirit, and he says to Peter, I'll give you money. And, uh, and Peter says, Let you, you, know, you and your money can die together, and he repents and, uh, and is become part of the church. Verse 26, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started off and went on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of, all, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to, to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah and the prophet. And he goes on to read that prophetic word about Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, and Philip explains that's who we're talking about, Jesus. 
the Ethiopian eunuch, as, as you remember, is baptized, and, he, uh, and as suddenly ha- something happens, verse 39, the, the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Uh, for those of you who know anything about like Star Trek or Star Wars, this is the beaming over of Philip. All right, we don't know exactly how it happened, but it says the Spirit just whisked him away, took him away, and he beamed over to Azotus. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the, the, and the eunuch did not see him again, but the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appears at Azotus. Now, Azotus is a city, in some Old Testament, you'll re- read the language Ashdod, Ashdod, A-S-H-D-O-D. That's Azotus, the Greek word for the city, same city. Used to be a Philistine city. At, by this time, it was more of a Roman city. But these are people that have never heard the gospel before. Philip appears there, and he travels about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reaches Caesarea. Now, I want to have you think of yourself as a Philip and ask yourself the question, what can I possibly do in engaging the unfinished task? The fact that there are people that have never heard the gospel. What does that mean for me here in Lansing? What does that mean in the capital area? What does that mean to me in terms of the way that I'm going to live my life? And let me urge you to think in terms of rather than being overwhelmed by the task unfinished, that you feel instead invited into the task unfinished, just like Philip was. Now, Philip and you and me, we might find ourselves in circumstances we might not choose. Years ago, I met a young man, graduated Harvard University with a master's degree, and I found him working behind the counter at a McDonald's. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Harvard, but generally that's not one of their graduates they brag about. But he was in debt, and he had to take a job, and he couldn't get a teaching job. That's what he wanted. And he ended up taking a job at McDonald's. But like Philip, he found himself in a circumstance he wouldn't have chosen for himself, but he just said, the Lord has me here. And when I asked him about it, he said, I am getting to talk with Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists who have never heard the gospel before because we work on the same team. He says, I've got people from the Middle East, from North Africa, from Southeast Asia, all working. So so in between the, would you like fries with that, I'm able to share the gospel. It's seeing where God has placed you. Philip gets displaced, kicked out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. He finds himself in Samaria, and he goes for it. If you want to make a difference with the task unfinished, we have to rely on God's power. God's power. Not on our power, but on God's power. Think of God's power in Philip's life. He was powerful to witness in the face of his natural enemies. Samaritans would not have been people on his Christmas card list. He found himself powerful enough to witness amongst his natural enemies. I was talking to somebody here in Michigan not too long ago, And I talked about Dearborn. How far is Dearborn from us? An hour? A little more than an hour from here. Largest population of Muslims in America. And I said to them, what an opportunity for Christians to go to Dearborn. They said, no, I'm praying for God's fire to come down. 
Now that might be a Christian person who's inspired more by American politics than anything else. But these are people that God brought here. And we need God's power to overcome any racism, any bias that we might have, and see people as precious in the eyes of God who deserve the right to at least hear about Jesus. Which is why I encourage you, if you don't already know it, your church is a partner with Angel House, right in Dearborn, doing friendship outreach to people from places like Lebanon, places like uh, uh, other Middle Eastern countries. I think Yemen is heavily represented in Dearborn. But these are the people that are your Samaritans. They're geographically close, but maybe culturally distant. Philip has the Holy Spirit power. Now there's obviously power for the miraculous, healings, miracles. I might have said this when I was here a number of years ago, I don't know, but if you know someone who is Muslim especially, please pray for them to have dreams, visions, miracle healings, visitation from an angel, visitation from Jesus. It, it, around the world is almost often the number one way that Muslims start their journey towards Jesus is a dream or a vision. And you might say, I'm not sure I believe in that. It doesn't matter, they do and God does, so he's bigger than you. Pray that they would have dreams and visions, and that would provoke the question around which you can build a friendship. Holy Spirit power. Philip received power from God to over, overcome his natural bias. Since the last time I was here, we had a rather significant event at one of our Boston sports events. You might remember in April of 2013, something happened that rocked our city and to agree our nation. At the Boston Marathon finish line, two radical Islamic extremists set off a bomb that became the Boston Marathon bombing. Three weeks after that, I happened to be at Logan International Airport on a way to fly someplace and I noticed there was a young woman standing by uh, the kiosk where selling newspapers and gum and whatnot, and she had the hijab on, conspicuously Muslim. And, uh, you know, I, and she was all by herself and young, and I thought she might be probably from Morocco. We have uh, like 14,000 Moroccan Muslims in the Boston area. And uh, I have one phrase that I knew in Arabic, so I went over and I said to her, Assalamu alaikum, which is peace be upon you, something like that. She starts to cry. I thought I must have said something wrong in a foreign language, you know? It's like, what did I actually say? You know, like, hey, baby, you know? Um, <laughs> she starts to cry. I said, why are you crying? Didn't I say it right? She goes, oh, no, salam alaikum salam. She says it back to me. She goes, I've been standing here for three weeks since the Boston Marathon. You're the first person who has spoken to me. This is a person who needs to know the love of Jesus. Now, I would love to tell you that we had a conversation, I led her to Christ and she's planted a church. That's not true. I just was a friend. I'm a part of the process that God's doing. And I bore witness just by an outreach, overcoming my natural bias by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we wanna make a difference in terms of the unfinished task, we need to rely on God's power to give us the power to see people the way that he sees them. Over the last year, I've had the amazing experience of listening to people from Egypt and from Nepal, both all Christians 
talking about the way they responded to the earthquake of over a year ago in Nepal and how they responded to uh, the uh, uh, Arab Spring. In, in Egypt, this church, the largest church in the, uh, in the Arabic, the largest evangelical church in the Arabic-speaking world, because they're literally a block away from Tahir Square, they decided the thing they needed to do most was because people were being wounded, they would set up in their, in their church like a clinic. And the medical doctors from the church recruited Muslim medical doctors to come with them. And if you were a jihadi, if you were a soldier, if you were a revolutionary, if you were a Christian or Muslim or an Orthodox, it didn't matter. If you were hurt, we would treat you. This received such press in Egypt, it was on the news and in the newspapers because of the way the Christians were loving people that historically they've been divided with. Power to overcome their natural bias. That's what we need. That's what Philip had, especially in talking to these Samaritans. In, 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 in Nepal, the, Nepal is a, a Hindu-influenced country, so there's a very strong caste identification, and oftentimes in Nepal, you can tell someone's caste based on their last name. Now, you and I might not pick it up, but they would know. And after the earthquake, Christians were killed. Many Christians were killed in that earthquake because the earthquake happened on a Saturday morning, and that's when the Nepali church worships. And there was actually a few churches where the whole church just collapsed on the whole congregation and wiped them out. But the Christians rose above their own pain. I mean, Philip could have been sulking that he had been displaced from, from Jerusalem. But instead, he's preaching the gospel. Instead of sulking in their own pain, the Nepali church became the primary agents of relief and care for those injured in that earthquake. Didn't matter if you were a Tibetan Buddhist or a high caste or low caste Hindu. And they themselves saw the expansion of the church because by the power of the Spirit, they overcame their biases. That's what Philip illustrates. And we need to ask God for the power to see people the way that he sees them. So that we don't see Samaritans anymore. We just see people who have not yet received the gospel, received the invitation, received the opportunity to receive Jesus. Another lesson you want to learn from Philip is if you want to be used by God, you've got to be willing to obey God's prompting. So not only God's power, but God's prompting. Philip is unbelievable. I mean, he's 24-7. I go over and I'm going to preach to Samaria, preach the gospel there, things are going well. The angel says, go speak to this guy, the Ethiopian eunuch. And if you notice, Philip becomes the agent for preaching the gospel to Samaria and to the ends of the earth because he actually leads the very first African Christian to faith in Jesus. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church actually traces their heritage to this man. To this day, they say they're the oldest standing church in Africa because of the fact that the Ethiopian brought the gospel. Now, you might be curious to know why was an Ethiopian in Jerusalem worshiping? It's a good question. Tradition says that when Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, which is Ethiopia, visited, <clears throat> they shared more than wisdom. And there's a lot, they, and the Ethiopians still have a legend that they are the lost tribe of Israel. Parents, you can explain that to your kids later on. And um, 
If you know anything about, um, uh, what is it called out of Jamaica? Rastafarianism. Rastafarianism is directly connected to that belief, which we won't go into until you come and ask me a question later on tonight, maybe. But Philip is prompted by God. He leads the Ethiopian to baptism. He goes home and will take the gospel back to Ethiopia, and boom, he's over in Azotus now. Listening to God's prompting. The angel says, go, verse 26, and he went. The angel says, go, verse 29, and he went. The angel is, Philip's available to be used as God's mouthpiece, 30 to 38. Philip, Philip gets translated or basically transported over to Azotus, and he, he's a witness wherever God puts him. And that's the story of the Bible. It's the story of available people. I'm a student at, at the university. Now, I gotta get this right. MSU. I knew that would be a danger zone if I got it wrong. The, the Spartans? Spartans, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, Spartans? Yeah. Make yourself available. It's amazing to me. I mentioned earlier the Uyghur people of Western China, sometimes radicalized Muslims. We started praying for them at our church a number of years ago. This guy working on the campus of MIT comes in one Sunday morning and he says, you know how we've been praying for the Uyghurs? I said, yeah, I'd like you to meet one. He was a graduate student, a postdoctoral student at, at MIT. And a Uyghur person that none of us in our congregation probably ever would have gone to was now hearing the gospel in our church because someone reached out to an international student obeying God's prompting. Philip says, God, I'm here. Where do you want to take me? Go looking. Walk around your neighborhood. There's a couple at our church who still, now into their 70s, walk around their neighborhood and pray for God to lead them to scholars from China who are at some of the Boston schools who have never heard the gospel before. They've met people who used to write speeches from Mao Zedong. They've met people from uh, the Chinese Communist Party. They've met people who are going to be leaders in government back in their country just because they're obeying God's prompting. And, and, and they actually, in wintertime, because it's too cold to just walk the neighborhood and do a prayer walk, in wintertime, they actually go to the vegetable section of the supermarket where they're selling the bok choy and this kind of thing that the Chinese students are shopping for, and they hang out there until God gives them someone. Look, where is God prompting you? Start the conversation. If the lady has a hijab, say hello. If the Chinese international student tells you they've never been to a church before, invite them. Or better yet, invite them into your home. Thanksgiving's coming up. Talk to the people in your mission family that work with international students. You might get the unfinished task around your table. That's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Open-handedness, going where God has us. And related to that, and the book of Acts chapter eight sort of illustrates this very vividly. If you wanna make a difference, number one, you need to rely on God's power. Number two, you need to rely on God's prompting. And number three, we need to rely on God's preparing the people that we're going to. You see this in the book of Acts chapter, chapter eight. Simon the sorcerer is obviously prepared. A little confused, but he eventually Comes. The Ethiopian eunuch is obviously prepared by God. You see, God is going before us. God knows that the task is unfinished, 
but for whatever reason, God sovereignly limits himself to finish the task through broken people like you and me. So the starting point might be just to start praying that God will prepare the people you're gonna be seeing. My, my wife works at a microbiology lab at a Boston area hospital, and for years she's been praying for God to give her the opportunity to talk to a Gujarati Hindu who never heard the gospel in his own country and has come to the United States. But he found a Hindu temple, and for all, for all we could assume, he had no need to hear the gospel until he wants his daughter to get the best possible education. So he sends her to a Catholic private school, which provokes all sorts of theological questions. Now he goes to my wife and says, now my, my daughter says that you Christians believe this. Is this true? Why? Because God is the one answering her prayers by preparing this young man, this, uh, this older man, to hear the gospel. The couple that goes reaching out to international students, I tell, asked them, what's the most amazing story you've ever experienced? She goes, we were walking through the, the town praying that God would introduce us to international students from China so they could hear the gospel, maybe for the first time. And they said, we came upon these four students, graduate students at one of the local schools, and, and they asked, <clears throat> they, they said, you know, they asked a few questions about American history, because it's a pretty big issue in our area. And then they said, we were wondering, um, could you take us to church? That was like the third question, could you take us to church? We heard that the church is a big part of American culture. And these were four male graduate students. We wanted to go to church, but the only one we found was called Our Lady of something. We thought it was a woman's church. <laughs> so they said, don't worry, come with us. You go to our church on any given Sunday morning at the nine o'clock service, you'll be seeing Bill and Judy and eight or 10 Chinese international students, some of whom become followers of Jesus, some are hearing it for the first time, but at least they're having a chance to hear it. The unfinished task. I have no idea, someone in your church can probably tell you this, but I'm guessing there's thousands of international students right in this area. Is that a fair thing, or is it hundreds? Thousands, you know? Go looking for them. They might not come looking for you. If you wanna to come to Boston and find the Moroccan Muslims, you have to go looking for them. But go looking, ask questions ranging from the Muslim doctor at the clinic to the, uh, the, the, the Sikh pharmacist from India to the, the person who might be working at Bigby's Donuts. Bigby? Bigby. Not Big Lee. That's another story for another thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. Um, <laughs> how can we be part of reaching out to the world that's come to us? How can we be part of the unfinished task? It's interesting if you look at Philip. He starts by going local across cultures to Samaria. That might be, like I said, the people that are geographically close but culturally distant. Then he goes to somebody who's an unreached newcomer, the Ethiopian in Jerusalem territory. That could be anything from immigrants to international students. People who are coming into our area as short-term or long-term visitors, but they maybe never heard the gospel. And then Philip finally has to go, going to a pioneering place where the gospel had never been preached, to Azotus. And in a sense, for some of us, it might mean that God calls us to reach cross-culturally local and touch people that are, might have been here for a while, like Dearborn, 
but maybe they've never heard the gospel. Or maybe God's going to call us to reach out to newcomers who are here but haven't yet heard the gospel. Or maybe God's going to call some of us to go to the places where the gospel is not yet known, to go to the Central Asian nations, to go to the places in North Africa or across India or in different parts of China and Southeast Asia. For some, that might be your call, to hear the Spirit say, go to Azotus. But let me encourage you to start this week and asking God to give me your power, God, that I might hear your Spirit say when you're prompting me to speak and guide me to prepared people. My brothers and sisters, if we want to be part of the unfinished task being completed, Philip provides the case study of the lives we need to lead. Let's open our hearts, our eyes, our ears to the Spirit of God as to where he would send us. Let's pray. I'm just going to pause for a moment of silence and invite you to think about the world that you touch every week. Maybe if you're on the university campus, it's a little easier, but maybe you think about the doctor's appointment you have this week, or the people you're going to see in your neighborhood, or the lady with the hijab that you've never actually spoken to, and ask God to fill you with the power of his spirit to see those people the way that he sees them. Almighty God, we ask that you would empower us with your spirit to overcome the barriers in our own lives that keep us from being part of completing this unfinished task. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.